0: It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit Ellerslie.com. Session number 12 in our uh, series entitled Spiritual Lessons from Black and White America Uh, This is a season of our history, 1914 to 1974, where there's just a lot of black and white. So you could say black and white in racial matters, which we've addressed in various episodes in this series. And it's black and white in television and movies and photography. And our entire memory of this time period in history is black and white. It's black and white in the dress of the FBI, and they are all dressed in their their black suit coats and their white shirts and their black ties. And we have this black and white America that even is marked by the black and white of dogmatism. And we have very sharp disagreement in our country. And many of you could say, well, we've always had that. Yes, I'm not going to argue that. Uh, But this is a a very divisive time, a very combative time, which is going to establish a very, very deep divide between two different ideologies in our country. And you can look at different seasons, you know, where you had the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists in the very, very beginning. And ironically, their differences are far less extreme than our differences now. And even the differences that I could say existed back in this time period, we're sort of in the 30s, the early 30s in our series right now. I would almost say that our divide is even greater ideologically than it was then. And so there's this greater uh, schism that has been taking place in our country, whereas before it was more along geographical lines. Like the Civil War is going to be along geographical lines over very specific political issues. Today we have a civil war in our nation, but it's not geographical, it's ideological. And those differences are so extreme where we cannot even listen to each other oftentimes. You start hearing something come out of someone's mouth, you immediately tune them out. You, you, know, you look at them as a total idiot and you discount every word from the word go. And that leads to greater problems. When you can no longer listen, when you can no longer dialogue about things and actually understand someone's position, you've lost the ability to recover which is one of the reasons you see me going through this because I want to appeal to us as the church to be those that are willing to recover, that desire to seek and save lost instead of just condemn them. And this is an important function in the church because it's an important facet of God's own heart. He does not delight in the death of the wicked. He desires all men to be saved. There is a desire he has to recover and to restore. And if, if one of the, if his sheep is caught in, in a brambly bush, he's going to leave the 99 and go after it. If that one coin is lost, if that son is lost, he is going to pursue it. And so we want to take on that same nature. And that's part of the basis of what stirs me in this time period. So spiritual lessons from black and white America. Part 12, Taming Hollywood. Hollywood didn't just begin you know somewhere in the you know the nineties and and come out with all of its smut. Uh, Hollywood is going to emerge in this time period when. Uh, moving pictures uh, is going to come about. Now I told you back in 1915, we have the first major motion picture. Now we had little short uh, you know, uh, moving picture uh, productions that were made before that and nothing to brag about. And then we're going to have this first major release which is called the birth of the nation, birth of a nation. And it used to be called the Klansman in its play, play form. And the front cover is a picture of a member of the Ku Klux Klan. And so you you begin to realize this is the very first use of Hollywood was not necessarily in the most healthy way. And it was meant to shape thinking. And so it's interesting to see the power of this medium of communication that is going to be invented in this time period that we are going through. And it's going to find its legs in this time. So at the same time, we are trying to move in a moral direction after World War I, and we're going to have things like prohibition, where we're going to eradicate alcohol. And then you're going to see this massive swing to have more guzzling of alcohol in the 20s than maybe any decade ever you know, before or, or since. That's an irony, don't you think? And the same is going to happen with the, the inflow of immorality in the 20s. So what's called the Roaring 20s is going to be an invitation To the flesh in our country, and it's just like a wholesale uh, invite, and I think some of us have felt in our day and age, I don't know if you remember what it felt like in 2020, where we were declining, we were declining, and pretty fast, but then in 2020, it just felt like we jumped off a cliff. It was like a free fall. The the 20s are going to, ironically, in the 1900s, are going to feel the same way. Maybe there's something about 20s uh, that is important here. Uh, But in the 1920s, they're going to have a free fall as well. And Hollywood is going to be the chief advocate behind that. They are pressing boundaries at every turn. And if it is sensational, they'll do it. And if it will sell tickets, they'll do it. And there's no guard upon it. There is no rules to prohibit anything. So almost everything coming through the theater system is actually extremely dangerous for the soul. And yet there is no, you know, plugged in reviews for things. And so the things that were actually being introduced into movies were, I mean, to us today would be shocking because when we think of old movies, we're thinking, oh yeah, well back in the good old days, the black and white movie days, whoa, uh, just, just make sure you, you you need to know that just because it's black and white does not mean it is healthy. That's actually a, a, a revelation to some of you right there. Taming Hollywood. Eric Hollywood Ludi. There is an itch for it within us all. So I may have shared this at some juncture in this semester, but uh, I didn't grow up in the wilds you know hunting fishing camping i grew up in suburbia and i never really thought much about it you know i would go out and shoot hoops and play you know football down at the park after school this was my version of manliness right and i would sweat and i would you know stick my hair i used to love to sweat and then i would stick my hair straight up and i felt like really cool when i would do it Uh, and after i thought about it later it's like "Eh, i'm not exactly sure that that looked very good eric and but I love to play sports, and but I was very pampered in the sense that I never really was exposed to difficulty, challenge, danger. And it just wasn't my life. And so in uh, college, I was uh, joining an archaeological dig, and this is in my freshman year, so uh, and uh, I was I was down in Texas at this archaeological dig, and they Uh, I was trying to figure out, because I had been told that we were going to stay in cabins, which I was a little scared about, you know, to stay in a cabin, you know, I pictured bugs everywhere and, you know, some kind of creature running around on me at night. And so I was looking around, I go, and I, I made the mistake of asking the group of guys there when I came. It's like, so where are the cabins? And they look at each other. We don't stay in cabins, we're staying in Tents? Tents? And I'm, I'm what, how do you stay in a tent? I mean, what's that like? And th- then they show me this tent over there and then like, yeah, everyone needs to put up their own tent. Like, <clears throat> okay. And of course I had no clue how to put up a tent, right? So I make some comments about the fact that, well, how do you put up a tent? Oh, I mean, you could not say anything worse than what I was saying. And my nickname was officially established at that point. I was known as Hollywood. For the entire archeological dig, I was Hollywood. So, I feel connected to this message somehow. And so I will be a character in this message, and I will be Hollywood in this, because there really is an itch for everything that has happened in the 20s. We all have the same itch in us. It's freedom from the moral restraints of a Judeo-Christian worldview. We want the freedom from it. There There is a part of us known as our flesh that desires to escape out from under that and find this craving, this exploration, and that's exactly what's happening in the 20s. And so we're gonna call that Hollywood, which is what it was. It's, it's, it's just sort of interesting that this name has always been associated with whatever that is. So my humorous connection to the movies, little did you guys know that I'm connected to movies. Uh, and I mean, it's, I have to, that's why I put the word humorous, because it is humorous that I'm connected to movies, because I really can't make a movie. Not that I couldn't take film, And I couldn't edit it together. I I can do both, right? But to make it look good? I'm not a movie maker. I'm not an actor. I'm I'm none of the above. I do have a certain soft spot for the arts. I, I do. And so Hudson was very interested in movie making. And so I have various people that I know in the movie making world. And so I started bringing him to film sets. And so it introduced me to... The film world in a funny way. Then I start speaking, it's you know, movie of like uh, filmmaker events, and suddenly I'm spe- people are looking at me and like, does he make films? Well, not really, but I'm speaking here for some reason. And so it was just this odd uh, thing that happened. So if you look at this picture, this is the, the movie Overcomer. Uh, <laughs> uh, there's Hudson, and there's me. So, I mean, is that some good acting or what? Okay, so the next time you're making a movie, I know you should probably consider me uh, for it. They had a scene in there where uh, I was, and I don't know, it was like the original cut of it or something, uh, Hudson, you'd remember at least, where they had the, the, art, the team, the good team that you're cheering for, uh, which is Alex Kendrick's team, is going to, uh, you know, they're gonna miss a shot and I'm gonna go, oh no. And my kids are like, oh, it was on the screen. It was like very clo- It felt like it was a close-up. Like they zoomed in on my face, even though they didn't. It just felt that way to all of us. And uh, there's that's Daddy's oh no face. Like when when they'll say something like, you know, oh I you know I forgot my lunch. I'll be like, oh no. <laughs> and uh, so that was my oh no face. And they I, I didn't see it. I, I actually got it and I tried to take a picture of it on the screen. They won't, you know, it blacks it out on the screen when you try and take a screenshot of your own computer. The strangest thing. So I had to take this with my phone uh, and, and get it on here. So sorry about that, guys. But I just wanted to show you my, my big moment. You know, Philip Telfer is to, my, uh, to the right over there. Isn't that cool? Uh, yeah. And uh, so this is uh, me in at in a film uh, festival. Is that what it's called? Christian, yeah, uh, CWVFF. And I was asked to be on a panel. So I get up on this panel. Now there's some rather uh, well-known characters. Okay, I'll just say everyone is well-known except for me on this panel. Everyone is associated with movies and I'm up there and I'm trying to think what I'm doing up here. How I, if they ask me anything about making a movie, what am I supposed to say? And so it's this very awkward moment, which is probably why you see my head uh, like that. And I, I saw these two girls in the like, first or second row, and you could see they're looking through everyone, going, oh, that's so-and-so, that's so-and-so. And then they get to me, and I could read their lips. They're like, who is that? <laughs> yeah, I shouldn't be there. That's part of the, the humor. But I have a soft spot for the arts, and one of the things that has been very hard is how to use the medium of film in a manner that can impact the world for Christ. And there's a whole bunch of debate about this, and there's a whole bunch of challenge on this point. And you know, A.W. Tozer used to be very strong against movies, and I totally get it, why? You know, you go back to the 50s, and the idea of using this medium for the glory of God was almost non-existent, it was just bad news. This was a territory of the devil, and so what you see is this movement of attempting to take the arts and actually use them to communicate truth, not just even delicately, you know, smatter in a little worldview of truth, but to actually leverage it to speak clearly. Of course, there's debate about that amongst Christians. Young Christians that are more artistic really don't like a square straight on message of the gospel in a movie. So the Kendrick movies can be a struggle for a lot of young Christians because they're too straightforward. You know, it's like, oh yeah, the classic gospel message in it. And they would prefer a little more artistry. And it's interesting, because I I really like the Kendricks, and I know that when they give a a movie, or they deliver a movie, it's like a sermon. It's the same thing I'm doing. When I'm giving a sermon, I I want it to be straightforward, and I want it to be clear what I'm trying to say. I'm not just looking to be artistic, but I do do love artistry, and so do they. So you, you see, it's led by the message with a little bit of artistry, and that's the way I give sermons too. And yet, I can understand, for those of you that are like, ah, can we be a little more... Indirect. Can we bait someone in with the beauty of art and then influence them with a biblical worldview? Hey, I, I would say to each his own on that one. Each of us is wired uniquely to express the glory of Jesus Christ, and I don't think there's a right and a wrong way to do that. But to have our motive be to deliver Jesus is part of what I'm a fan of, which is how I end up in these odd situations. Taming Hollywood. That would be like taming Leviathan. Okay, right now, Hollywood has a very strong voice in our world. And as the church, could you imagine trying to jump on the back of that and tame it and bring it into order and correct it? Well, it's not going to be very easy, guys. And people have tried to do this throughout history, which is why I'm giving this message, because it is going to be attempted in the 30s. So I'm going to read something about a character in the Bible named Leviathan. Now, to call him a character is a funny way of saying it. We don't know exactly what Leviathan looks like. We can only hazard guesses. Some people have said an ancient dinosaur, some kind of sea creature. There's one, you know, passage which would cause me to think it has multiple heads, even. But it's fire breathing and has smoke coming out of its nostrils. Okay, it has it's plated, sort of like, uh, you know, a dragon, like Smaug, you know, with its, you know, its plates. Uh, and so it's like, huh. What is this thing? So here's in Job 41, and you'll notice there's a lot of different verses. Can you draw out Leviathan with a hook or snare his tongue with a line which you lower? Can you put a reed through his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will you play with him as with a bird or will you leash him for your maidens? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hand on him. Remember the battle and never do it again. Indeed, any hope of overcoming him is false. Shall one not be overwhelmed at the sight of him? Who can remove his outer coat? Who can approach him with, his double bright- with a double bridle? Who can open the doors of his face with his terrible teeth all around? His rows of scales are his pride. Shut up tightly as with a seal." One is so near another that no error can come between them. His sneezings flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. Out of his mouth go burning lights, sparks of fire shoot out. Smoke goes out of his nostrils as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals, and a flame goes out of his mouth. Strength dwells in his neck, and sorrow dances before him. His heart is as hard as a stone, even as hard as the lower millstone. When he raises himself up, the mighty are afraid. Because of his crashings, they are beside themselves. Though the sword reaches him, it cannot avail, nor does spear, dart or javelin. He regards iron as straw and bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. clings cling st- cling sto- cling stones, that, that seems funny. become like stubble to him. Darts are regarded as straw. He laughs at the threat of javelins. He beholds every high thing. He is king over all the children of pride. What is that? And that's in the Bible. Doesn't it sound a little like some science fiction movie? And it's like in the Bible, and it's described like it's a real thing. And most of us are like, well, I've never seen that. And yet, I'm going to describe this is Hollywood, something that cannot be tamed. And I'm also going to say that this is something that lives within every single one of us. And no matter how hard you try, you cannot put a harness on it. You cannot stop it. It is greater than you are. The fire-breathing creature swimming within the inner seas of Hollywood. It appears to have no equal. There is no one that can stop Leviathan. I mean, if all of us could write a paper on what I just wrote, it would basically be nothing can stop this creature. It is greater than any man's willpower, any man's ability. So you could have a desire to stop it, but you can't stop this. This is Hollywood, guys. Do you not know what you're dealing with? James 3, 7 through 8 is going to talk about a similar sort of beast that no man can tame. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no man can tame Leviathan. Oops, the tongue is what it says. Isn't that interesting to see the parallel? To imagine the tongue even being likened to Leviathan is a really weird statement, uh, even for me to bring up. And yet, but no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Now, most of you at first are thinking, I can control my tongue. Come on. You see, James is going to say that it's set on fire by the fires of hell. No man can tame it. So if you were to hear it that way, and that was the conclusion, there's the the punctuation, what could your conclusion be? Well, I guess my tongue will always rule me. And that's if you don't know the gospel. Because Leviathan does have someone who can better him. And your tongue does have something that can tame it. And yet no man can do it. There is nothing that we in and of ourselves in and of our own capacity are able to do. So there's good news. There is one greater than Leviathan. Whoo, oh, that's good to know. Now we know that as believers, but it's good to sort of allow the weight of it to sort of linger in the air. If there is a power out there that no matter how much you desire to take it down, you can't, it is that strong. So think about the tongue, Acts 2, 4. You're going to have God's solution come. Jesus is going to die on the cross. And I love the phrase, I think it was William Law that said that Jesus didn't just die to forgive us. He died to give us Pentecost. That his end game was to give us life, to give us power, to give us the ability to overcome, to give us his very life. And so it says in Acts 2, 4, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now I recognize that as you hear that, you could immediately get caught up in the debate of tongues and uh, prophecy and you know spiritual gifts and things like that. But okay, see if we could not go there for a second, and see if you could just look at it this way: they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with a different sort of tongue, not a tongue that is ruled by the enemy, not a tongue that is ruled by flesh but a tongue that is now ruled by the Holy Spirit. Do you see that? That is actually the working of grace in our life, that we are no longer controlled by an old tongue, but we are now controlled by a new tongue. Now think about what the tongue represents, communication, revelation. We speak the words of God. How will they know unless they hear? And how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news? Well, when you're bringing good news, yes, you live it, but you also proclaim it. And this tongue becomes very, very important in the proclamation and the publishing, the production of the gospel in this earth. And so when you see something like Hollywood, you see something that is set on fire by the fires of hell. No man can tame it. I mean, you can try your best, but this is a really hard job. And yet there is one who actually is greater than this Leviathan, than this unwieldy beast. Job 41.10, no one is so fierce that he would dare stir Leviathan up. Who then is able to stand against me? That's God talking. So yeah, you're afraid of stirring Leviathan because he's so powerful? Well then, just think about this. Who can stand against me? Isn't that a great meditation? And It's like, okay, you're afraid of Leviathan. Well, how much more should you be afraid of God? Because God is in complete control of Leviathan. He has nothing on God. God has everything on him. So if you fear Leviathan, how much more should you fear God? Psalm 74, 12 through 14. For God is my king from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your strength. You broke the heads of the sea serpents in the waters. You broke the heads of Leviathan in pieces and gave him his food to the people inhabiting the wilderness. Wow, that's our God. So I want you to ponder this. There is a beast inside of each one of us. It's called the flesh. It is a principle of sin that has been awakened in the waters of our soul and it lurks about. And many of us have tried to deny its existence sort of like the Loch Ness Monster. It doesn't really exist, it's all a myth. When in actuality there really is a beast in these waters. Now, most of us that are honest, and that's one of the key things of coming to Christ, is you have to start acknowledging the reality of a problem. That I have a problem. It doesn't matter how much I want to use this life to showcase Jesus, my life has an impediment. It has a problem. It has a self interest, it has a proneness away from God. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. It's, a, it's an odd thing, which is why it's critical for us to recognize this. The reason God gives us the law is to expose this beast. The law exposes our sin. If you don't have the law, if you don't have the light of Christ's righteousness to show how different you are from God, you will not see it. But when the law comes, it outlines it. It shows its teeth. It shows its smoke. It shows its fire. It shows its fierceness. It is the king over all that are stuck in pride. If you are cultivating pride in your life, you are ruled by this, which is why we exit in and through humility. It has no hold on the humble at all. And so when you submit to God and you repent of your sin and you believe in Jesus, you actually are removed from its hold and its sway, and it no longer has power over you. And Jesus at the cross, if you could say it this way, symbolically, is slain Leviathan. So it no longer has authority over you. Isaiah 27.1, in that day, the Lord with his severe sword, great and strong, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. Leviathan, that twisted serpent, and he will slay that, the reptile that is in the sea. Now, you could say, who cares? Unless you personalize it. If you're personalizing it, we're talking about the cross right there. I mean, this is actually the gospel of Jesus Christ in a weird form, sort of like a Narnian form uh, or a, you know, J.R.R. R. Tolkien form. I mean, this is like odd. And I mean, the fact that this is in the Bible is so fascinating to me. So, Taming Hollywood in the Dirty 30s. I think that's a pretty good name, uh, the Dirty 30s, the Roaring 20s, the Dirty 30s. That's because of the Dust Bowl, but we had some dirty stuff going on, too. Hollywood wasn't looking very good, guys. We have, and I unfortunately, I can't really go much into that. It wouldn't be helpful to any of us to talk about how dirty it was. <laughs> Just trust me, it was dirty. And it was headed in a very, very dangerous direction for our culture. And so you're going to see this response, ironically, very similar to Prohibition, where you're going to see a response of the moralist community. 1919, we're going to prohibit alcohol. So prohibit alcohol. Don't let anyone drink it. We'll be fine. That will solve all our nation's ills. And then 1934, when Roosevelt came back in, one of his platform points was to bring back the booze. And so we are going to have the return of alcohol. And whether or not we say it's the return of sanity, it's ironic that we seem to do better with alcohol once we made it legal again. That's really hard for me to say, guys. I mean, as a conservative, that is the worst thing you could ever have come out of your mouth. It's like, yeah. And all of our problems with marijuana seem to go away when we made it legal. See, I don't want to encourage any of that. I don't like any of these things. This whole time period is really challenging to look at as a conservative because it's violating multiple things. Morality in and of itself does not tame Leviathan. And that's the key. So in 1934, right when we're we're bringing back booze, you know what we're going to do? We're going to put a censor on Hollywood. So prohibit the filth. Isn't this ironic? We bring back alcohol, and at the same year, we're going to bring down the prohibition of filth in and through Hollywood. And in 1952, we sort of slide back to where we started, and that is... Bring back the free speech. We should have free speech. We should be able to say whatever we want. And so even though there was still a code in place, there is going to be the movement where production houses are going to start snubbing their nose. Like, I don't care what consequences I have. I'm still going to put this on the screen. And of course, the public loves it. That's the problem, is the public will eat it up. If if we could all have self-control, we could put out put Hollywood out of business. But the problem is, They're appealing to the very problem that Leviathan is over. It's his territory, and he's a very strong foe. PBS.org said it this way, it was a rash of Hollywood scandals in the late teens and the early 20s that helped intensify the ire of local censors and forced the film industry leaders to address the industry's image problems. In 1921, comedian Fatty Arbuckle was accused of the rape and murder of a young actress. Director William Desmond Taylor was found murdered. Actor Wallace Reed died of a drug overdose and America's sweetheart actress Mary Pickford obtained a quickie divorce to marry dashing matinee idol Douglas Fairbanks. Studio heads hired a public relations man, Will Hayes, to bolster the industry's tainted reputation by convincing the nation that Hollywood was not all scandalous and that the movie industry would censor itself. So there's a threat that is taking place, and that is that the government is going to come in because this is leading to a moral breakdown in our country. Young kids are going in and seeing this junk. And it is actually creating hazards because you know, you've grown up in a system where it's like you have to be of a certain age to see this movie. Well, back then, there wasn't any such governance. It was just a theater. And whatever's in the theater, whoever wants to pay, the theater will let them in. And so you could just imagine how the young people of the culture were responding to this. It's like, hey, you know, this is a great way to spend my afternoon. And so the government is actually wanting to uh, bring censor to this. I mean, Herbert Hoover. The ultimate conservative is in the office, right? This is conservatives all throughout this time in the presidency, in the 20s, which is a funny statement, one of the most decadent uh, decades on record, and it was a whole bunch of conservatives that were running the show. I mean, just you could see how we need to own up to a few things here. Conservative in, conservatism in and of itself does not save someone from the indulgence of the flesh. That's a key point for us to remember as we go through this, and so... We see a desire for the the government is saying, hey, if you don't clean this up, we'll clean it up for you. And so William Hayes is going to be brought in to sort of self-govern Hollywood. But he's an insider. He's part of Hollywood, right? So this is the equivalent. Remember, I'm sort of likening myself to Hollywood as I go through this because a young pre-Jesus Eric is definitely a great picture of all of this. Eric Hollywood Ludi declares this, so I'm going to come to Jesus, and uh, you know I still have a lot of Hollywood in me, but I don't see it that way. right? So here's what I say. I'm a Christian. I no longer am going to live like I did in the late teens and early 20s. Remember that quote from pbs.org, which talks about in the late uh, teens and early 20s? That's the same thing I'm saying. I'm no longer going to live like I did in the late teens and early 20s. I'm going to completely change my life. No more sin. I'm done with that filth. You know, that's, that's what Hollywood's going to say, too. All right, all right, all right, all right. We're going to clean ourselves up. All right, we're not going to have any more of this filth. We're going to clean ourselves up. So government, you don't need to punish us. We're going to get this right. So how does Eric Hollywood Loody plan to pull this off? That's a good question. Well, I, I hire William Hayes to make it happen. Now, William Hayes is going to be symbolic in our message uh, of our first attempt to clean our life up you guys remember your first attempt to clean your life up? Remember that whole season of your life where you hired William Hayes and he's supposed to come in and he's supposed to get your act together because you feel this pending judgment over you from the government. And you're like, okay, I'll, I'll get this right. You know, cause I don't really want to go to hell. I, I want to get my life cleaned up. And I, I do want to do this for Jesus. Right. And so we bring in William Hayes, William Hayes. I'm going to liken him to the flesh. It's amazing to think that we would actually go to the flesh to solve our problem with the flesh. Isn't that an ironic uh, thing? It's, it's like Jacob, who esteems what Esau has, the firstborn, but he, go, he thinks Esau has the solution for his life, so he is going, he's called the heel grabber. Even when Esau's being born, they're twins in the womb, Jacob is going to reach out and grab uh, Esau's heel, and that's where he gets his name, Jacob. Jacob, heel grabber, deceiver, supplanter. He wants that first position. He's esteeming something good, but he's going after it the wrong way. He thinks Esau has a solution. Esau is the firstborn. That's like the same with your firstborn life. It's like grabbing a hold of your firstborn life and shaking it, trying to get it disciplined. And if you could just get your firstborn life to function right, you could please God. You could do this with purity. And it just doesn't work that way. He's going to con Esau for his birthright. Then he's going to con uh, his dad, Isaac, for the blessing. And the guy still doesn't have anything. He's still searching for something, running for his life from Esau. He's miserable. And it's only until he takes that grip and lets go of Esau and uses that same grip to grab a hold of God and wrestle through the night that he's going to find the solution. But all of us are going to start, by default, with William Hayes. It's a weird thing, our insider who can like, clean us up. It's like, hey, could you just clean us, this up for us? So William, uh, William Hayes, this is a background on him, he was from William Harding's presidential campaign to postmaster general to the first chairman of the Motion Pictures Producers and Distributors of America in 1930. Oh, there he is, guys. Doesn't he sort of look like your flesh? Uh, that's, that's what your flesh would look like, yeah. <laughs> the Hayes Solution. So to avoid punishment, I will self-regulate. This is what the Hayes solution is. I will do my very best to behave differently. Almost all of us, if not 100% of us, have gone through this in our Christian life at some juncture, where we have hired William Hayes. He's our discipline, he's our determination, he's our willpower, and we can overcome this. We don't need to make a big stink about this. We don't need to draw it out into the open. We don't need to let everyone know about what our problems are. We'll just clean it up from the inside and we'll make our life better, all right? William Hayes. Introducing the Hayes Code. Hollywood's attempt at self-censoring itself to avoid federal intervention. So they're gonna come up with something called the Hayes Code, and this, this is a big part of American history right here. It's had a huge impact on a lot of things. And so it's sort of hard to argue with this. This is very interesting, though. And here's what I should say. When they bring out the Hayes Code in 1930, it's a great code, and you have to acknowledge it's, it's wise, it makes sense, and yet they can't keep it. So I'm just starting with that as a premise. So as you see this, you can be very impressed, but that doesn't mean that they have the power because the w- William Hayes doesn't have the power to actually slay Leviathan here. He's messing with something so much more powerful than himself. So here's the, here are the general principles of the Hayes Code. No picture shall be produced which will lower the moral standards of those who see it. Hence, the sympathy of the audience shall never be thrown to the side of crime, wrongdoing, evil, or sin. So if you end up cheering on sin, if you end up cheering on crime, or you cheer on the gangster instead of the policeman, it's a bad movie, right? And so this is part of the general, uh, the, the general principles. Two, correct standards of life subject only to the requirements of drama and entertainment shall be presented. So you cannot show that criminal activity leads to a, a, a successful life or a happy life. That would be against the correct standards of life. Law, natural or human, shall not be ridiculed, nor shall sympathy be created for its violation. So the bad guys, like, kill a cop and then get away with it. Oh, no, that, talk about a violation of the Hayes Code. The bad guy cannot win. The law needs to be respected. So if you're going to present something that is going to help a country... Well, then you need to preserve the order of the country, even in the values of your movie. Because up to this time, they had all these gangster movies. Gangster movies were the big thing back then. So, you know, all the the stuff with Al Capone and all the, the bad guys that are running around robbing banks. Oh, this was great stuff for the movies. And so they had all these bad guys becoming the heroes in the movies. And so the government is like, this is not healthy guys. We are promoting the wrong winners. We are promoting the wrong good guys. And so thus the Hayes Code. So these are the specific no-no's outlined in the Hayes Code. Nudity and suggestive dances prohibited. The ridicule of religion, forbidden isn't that a fascinating statement and ministers of religion were not to be represented as comic characters or villains thank you very much oh code we could, we could we need that the depiction of illegal drug use was forbidden as well as the use of liquor when not required by the plot or for proper characterization methods of crime for example safe cracking arson smuggling were not to be explicitly presented References to sex perversions such as homosexuality and venereal disease were forbidden, as were depictions of childbirth. The language section banned various words and phrases that were considered to be offensive. Murder scenes had to be filmed in a way that would discourage imitations in real life, and brutal killings could not be shown in detail. Revenge in modern times was not to be justified. The sanctity of marriage in the home had to be upheld. Pictures shall not infer that low forms of sex relationship are the accepted or common thing. Adultery and illicit sex, although recognized as sometimes necessary to the plot, could not be explicit or justified, and were not supposed to be presented as an attractive option. Portrayals of miscegenation were forbidden, that's in a a relationship between blacks and whites, or whites with any other uh, race. Scenes of passion were not to be introduced when not essential to the plot. Excessive and lustful kissing was to be avoided along with any other treatment that might stimulate the lower and baser element. The flag of the United States was to be treated respectfully and the people and history of other nations were to be presented fairly. Vulgarity defined as low, disgusting, unpleasant, though not necessarily evil subjects must be subject to the dictates of good taste. I don't know why the numbers are one and two. Are these one and two on every page? Uh, sorry about that, guys. That doesn't give you much of a list, does it? So, what number we're we at? I have no idea. Capital punishment, third-degree methods, which is the interrogation methods where you you know you beat up the guy, cruelty to children and animals, prostitution, surgical operations were to be handled with similar sensitivity all right, guys, so what a list. I mean, standing ovation, well done, let's clean the Hollywood up. This is from within. I mean, William Hayes is like, this is what we're going to do. But he had no power to implement. So the first thing that production houses do is snub their nose at that and say, well, that's a nice list. And then they make something that completely violates it. What's the good of having a list if you have no power to enforce it? Doesn't that feel like our life when we first start out in Christianity, we're like, all right, Lord, thank you for saving me. I'm gonna live for you now. I'm gonna be pure. Every thought I have is going to be honorable to you. Every word I speak is gonna be kind. It's gonna be loving. I'm gonna be patient. Oh, I'm gonna be all these things because you tell me to be all these things. Yeah, let's go, Eric. And then Eric doesn't quite match up. In fact, it almost would appear that Eric gets worse, (laughs) worse than I was before because I'm so focused on it. And now I have all hell trying to come against me to sabotage my first steps forward as a kingdom kid. I mean, this is like hard stuff. What's going on in my life? And I could say, well, welcome to the early 1930s for Hollywood. The arrival of the talkies in 1930. So we're going to add Sound to movies. Uh, They may have had music in the past, but now they're going to have the talking pictures So you actually have characters that actually can speak. I know what a novel idea that is and When this happens, it's interesting But it like seems to open up an entire new wave of decadence because now you can hear words You can hear concepts far more clearly so with it comes the arrival of greater filth and moral depravity. I almost want to say that this is so predictably the enemy right here that Hollywood is like, okay, let's clean ourselves up. And then talking pictures comes out at the same time. It's like right here. And they have no control over it. So Hollywood has lost the wheel. And they're like you know, sc- screaming down the interstate and hitting things all, all over the place. It's not looking good, guys. So the results of the Hayes solution... Even with the code, to morally improve them, Hollywood ironically gets worse. And the reason I'm bringing that up is because this is an incredible spiritual lesson for us. to recognize that your own determination, grit, willpower actually is not what solves Leviathan, or tames Leviathan in your soul. Colossians 2:21 through23, "Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle." It's the Hayes code. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Job forty-one twenty-six through 29. This is speaking of Leviathan, just as a reminder. Though the sword reaches him, it cannot avail, nor does spear, dart, or javelin, he regards the Hayes Code. Oops, it doesn't say that. He regards iron as straw, the bronze as rotten wood, the arrow cannot make him flee. Clingstones become like stubble to him. Darts are regarded as straw. He laughs at the threat of javelins. He laughs at the Hayes Code. That's exactly what these other production houses are doing. They're mocking the Hayes Code. Eric Hollywood Loody realizes that Hayes is ill-equipped to pull off this miracle. There comes a point in our life where we have to acknowledge we need something more than our own determination. The Spirit of God is working on us because part of our challenges in the modern church, we come to Christ and they pat us on the back and say, there you go. All right, you're set. And we don't recognize that how Leviathan inside works. And so we actually think, and I'm not sure how this works, but we think now it's up to us. Now that we've believed, Christianity now falls into our corner for us to carry on and for us to produce. So if we're going to produce the fruit of the Spirit, I mean, we could read Galatians 5, but if we're going to produce the fruit of the Spirit, we produce it the same way we would pass uh, you know, a class in school, the same way we would get an A on a test, the same way that we would gain a skill uh, in a job and learn uh, you know, some carpentry skill. I mean, it's, it's hard work. It's sweat. It's labor. It's labor. It's us with diligence applying ourselves to the task. And if we can do that in life, we can be successful in our Christian existence. And there's a misnomer there. It does not mean that you are not involved in the solution or that you do not put sweat into it. It's that you need a helper. And without the one who can tame Leviathan at work within you, you have no hope of taming leviathan so until you come to the place where you've been hit by his tail which is like a cedar multiple times you go flying you know like 50 feet uh you know and crash onto the beach you're like what is this i can't seem to tame this guy you have this harness that you're trying to stick on him and he just goes and hits you again what is the problem lord i can't figure out how to do this he goes i know because there's only one way to tame leviathan you see you've already tamed him You need to allow me to come in and do what I do. Jesus needs to not just save us in a conceptual way. He needs to save us in a real way where he moves into our life. And he actually goes and jumps into the sea of our life and deals with our Leviathan. That's the great secret right there. That's how we take on this beast. So Eric Hollywood Luty realizes that Hayes is ill-equipped to pull off this miracle. On July 1st, 1934, he brings in Joseph Breen to take the helm. Now, this is massively upgrading Joseph Breen by referring to him and likening him to the Holy Spirit. Okay? I'm sure he would feel very complimented. He was not that good of a guy, right? But for the sake of showing an illustration, it's sort of fun. Okay. Joseph Breen was a good man. He was. Now he has, there were accusations of him being anti-Semitic. The Jew, the Jewish community actually investigated this because he's one of the most influential men in American history. They are going to investigate and actually find the exact opposite to be true that he was a friend of the Jews. So I'll just eliminate that uh, from the table. Just in case you start studying Joseph Breen, you can at least know that. So Joseph Breen, I'm going to liken him to the Holy Spirit. Yes, that is a massive upgrade for who he was. He, he, was, he was a good man, you know, he had good intentions, but he, I, that, I'm definitely, you know, extending him a lot of grace uh, by likening him in that direction. So here's my description of him. He's the toughest nails Irish Catholic that is gentle as a dove. He has two qualities that are very unique, and they're two qualities that are very similar to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a tough character. He will get the job done. He's not going to be bullied around. He's bold. He's courageous. But he's also gentle. And he's tender. And he's soft when he needs to be soft. So he knows how to be strong and he knows how to be soft simultaneously. And that's why he's so good at what he does. Because he will correct us and he won't let us get away with something that we shouldn't be. But he'll also, when we are hurting, a smoldering wick he will not put out. He is very delicate with us in our injured state. And when he sees us humbled, he comes in with mercy. He responds to our situation so delicately. And Joseph Breen has this unique capacity that is like that. Tough as nails and yet gentle as a dove. There's a picture of uh, Joseph Breen. I don't think that's the way we picture the Holy Spirit looking, though, in our life. Uh, William Hayes, maybe, but not this guy. The code that Breen is implementing is identical. But now it can be kept. So he's coming in in 1934. They've had basically four years of failure on this. The Hayes Code means well, guys. It's saying something wise, moral, righteous, clean. I mean, everything about it, you have to admit that's a good list. I see no reason. I mean, there's a few things that are odd in there, but it's a good list for us. And now when Breen comes in, it can be kept, and there's a reason for that. So here's how PBS.org said it. In 1934, Joe Breen, a strict Catholic moralist from Philadelphia, was hired to run Hollywood's Production Code Administration, that's the PCA, set up to enforce the code. The PCA had the authority to review all movies and demand script changes. Any theater that ran a film without the PCA seal of approval would be fined $25,000. That's a lot of money back then which means if the seal of approval from the PCA isn't present, that theater isn't going to show it. Otherwise they'd be fined 25,000. So what's going to happen to the production houses? Well, they're going to make sure they get the seal of approval. This actually is going to work. The code had power at last. Isn't that a great statement? It's sort of like the Christian life suddenly has power. To do what it esteems, but it couldn't do it before. You love the thought of loving, you love the thought of being pure, you love the thought of being kind and patient. Oh, they're great thoughts, but without power, you can't do it. But when the Holy Spirit moves in, you now have the power to implement. So the code had power at last. The vulgar, the cheap, this is a quote from Breen, by the way the vulgar, the cheap, and the tawdry is out. There is no room on the screen at any time for pictures which offend against common decency. And these the industry will not allow, pledged Breen. Don't you like this guy? I like this guy. Wikipedia, I know, one of your favorite sources, says this. All scripts now went through PCA. And several films playing in theaters were ordered withdrawn. This guy's going to come in and clean house. Whoa. Huh. Huh. I'm missing a quote in there. I double double quoted that one. Oh, that's too bad. It was a good quote, too. And it was about the fact that family-centered movies are actually going to make uh, a move. And this is when Shirley Temple is going to come onto the scene. And a whole rash of Shirley Temple movies. She's like the darling of the family movie business. And so you're going to see a different sort of movie come out. Actually, it's a parallel with what we've gone through in our culture. In the 1980s, we're gonna go into a decadent decline in movies. And even the family movies have vulgarity, have nudity. I mean, it's, it was terrible. If you think about it, I don't even wanna encourage you to go back to the 80s and even go around and watch any movies. They're really raunchy and bad, and that Hollywood was pressing the limits. And then you're going to see a counter movement, which is very similar, and it's going to bring in these family movies, which is like, we don't need to include any of this in our movies. I mean, it's like, all of us are thinking, yeah. Why is that such a novel notion? And that's because the spirit of Hollywood has not left. Leviathan is still in the waters. (laughs) He gets tamed and then he gets released again. And so Hollywood, the spirits of Leviathan that has been in our nation, has been lurking for a long time. Being Breen tough, there is a panache to helping people side with The truth. So Breen has his work cut out for him because he's dealing with a lot of heavy hitters that have a lot of social clout. They're famous people. And he needs to come in and start bringing them into order. And so you have to be a pretty tough character to do this. And so I'm going to read you. I, I have two different letters that he is going to write to some of the bigwigs. And I'm just going to have you witness how he communicates. It's very interesting to me. So September 5th, 1934. So remember, July 1st is when he comes in, and he's going to come in and he's going to make waves. Mr. Sidney R. Kent, President, Fox Studio, Hollywood, California. So this is the root system of uh, 20th Century Fox, okay? Dear Mr. Kent, this is our Joseph Breen writing. I am presuming to address you in confidence about a matter which has given us little concern here in the office of the Production Code Administration. Frequently, at previews here in Hollywood, when our Production Code Administration seal is thrown upon the screen, it is greeted with loud hissing and catcalls. By the way, that's like, boo, you know, when the PCA symbol comes up. It has been noted, also, that most of this hissing is done by those who occupy the roped-off seats at the preview. These people, as you know, are usually either studio employees or the friends of the artists who appear in the picture admission to these roped off areas is always reserved to the studio sponsoring the preview. I hate like blazes to presume upon your kindness this way, but I wonder if you you could find time over the telephone to mention this situation to the responsible heads of Warner Brothers, Paramount, Metro, Columbia, and Universal. The hissing has had the effect of attempting to create in the minds of the people with which we have to do business the thought that the work of the production code is unworthy of support and not to be taken seriously. It adds much to our already overweighted burden. It seems to me that a word from you in this regard would be very helpful and make our task less uneasy. With assurances of my esteem, I am cordially yours, Joseph Breen. Isn't that... Great. Now, for those of you that, are, that love uh, literary uh, panache, that's really well said. This is a hard situation. He's trying to enforce something, but the very people that are supposed to be standing with him are the very ones going into theaters and hissing, giving cat calls and boos when the PCA symbol comes up. And so they're undermining the very integrity of the system. So he's going to the system the same way the Spirit of God does to us. Have you ever noticed that you can agree with something in your life? Like, you shouldn't, this is a classic thing for guys, whether it's like where their eyes wander. You shouldn't look at this. And then you're like, yes, I agree, I shouldn't look at that. And then you look at it, and the Spirit of God is like, you know, we're sort of undermining uh, the system of what we're trying to do here as long as you keep doing the opposite of what we're trying to establish. See, the Holy Spirit wants to establish a we, system. It's like, this is you and me, Eric, and we're going to work together in this, and so you can't just have your own agenda over here, and so can you submit to my agenda, and this is going to make my task less uneasy. <laughs> I love that. That is well said. Good. Well done, Breen. All right, May West. Uh-oh, guys. We have a problem. Uh, May West is one of those starlets uh, from the 20s, and the film code, the Hayes Code, is going to really uh, put a damper on her career because her career is everything on the list you're not supposed to put in a movie. I mean, that's like Mae West in a nutshell. And so we have these old Mae West films that don't pass the code, and the production houses know that they could make a lot more money if they were to re-release them. Now, this is something that happens in our life, too. We have a Mae West in our past. I'm not talking an actual woman named Mae West in our past. I'm talking about behavior in our past which is not seemly, not appropriate, doesn't match with the kingdom pattern. And yet, the enemy will make a move to try and get it republished, to get it to re-enter the theaters of our life. And here's Joseph Breen's response uh, to this whole thing. I'm saying, the proposed return of May West, when the old life knocks, being Breen clear, the spirit doesn't just labor to keep us from new failures, but returning to old ones. October 7th, 1935, Mr. Will H. Hayes. Remember the guy we hired first uh, to uh, solve our problem, and it didn't really solve our problem? Yeah, William Hayes, yeah, this is who it's going to. This is our old life, right? That is making a move to sort of say, hey, what we could resubmit these movies. And so, uh, Mr. Will Hayes, dear Mr. Hayes, I acknowledge with thanks the receipt of your letter bearing date of October 3rd with reference to Paramount Pictures, She Done Him Wrong and I'm No Angel, both of which have been the subject of discussion in connection with the application for a PCA seal of approval. I have read your letter with care as well as the documents attached thereto. I wanted you to be au courant, which means up to date, with the problem here. I saw both pictures myself and they are definitely wrong. It would be a tragedy if these pictures were permitted to be exhibited at the present time. I am certain that such exhibitions would seriously throw into question much of the good work which has been done and stir up enormous protest. If an appeal is made, I hope the board of directors will turn down both of these pictures. With kindest personal regards, I am, cordially yours, Joseph Breen. There's a manner in which the Holy Spirit works with us because there is an appeal of the old life to return. It's like, come on, we can, we can maybe edit out a few scenes, okay? But could we, could we allow Mae West to return to the, to, the, to the theaters? Is there a way of doing this? And what you see with Joseph Breen, like I'm likening him to the Holy Spirit, is to say, these are wrong. Don't try and justify. Don't try and rationalize. These are wrong, William. They do not belong in pictures. This is going to create a problem. And so if it comes to the board of directors, I hope the board of directors will support this. It's sort of like saying, back to us, Eric, when it comes down to the final decision, yeah, if you make a decision to go with this, I just want you to know where I stand on this. This is wrong. And we can harden to the Holy Spirit. It's a dangerous thought in our soul, if you ever were to think about it. It's very scandalous to ponder. The fact that you can overrule and harden and quench what the Spirit of God is doing. He has a position in our life to preserve our life from even the return of the May West side of us. And yet we need to be soft to it. Remember who Leviathan rules over? He's the king over all those that are proud. And when we think we know better, than God, we come under that rulership of that fire snorting, dragonish character with multiple heads. Taming Hollywood, is it possible? There is only one that can tame the beast. His name is Jesus. So, for all of us, just to freshly remember this is not something that ever can be accomplished in your own strength. If you want to win at this thing called Christianity, it's not William Hayes. And to, to call Joseph Breen the Holy Spirit sounds really awkward. And to say it's, it's Joseph Breen that will save you, that would sound you know, just horrible. But you need the power of the Holy Spirit. You need the second man to change you, to save you, and to bring harness to this part of your life that wants to rule you. And wants to disturb you. And wants to publish through you something very opposite of what God wants to publish through you. Father, I ask that you would work in us to profoundly change us internally. That we would be transformed by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That we would understand what that means practically and experientially and not just theoretically. That the living God would move in and that he would take control, and that we, together with him, would work to see this Leviathan tamed, slain, defeated, silenced, so that these waters of our soul would be crystal clear and still and be able to give a perfect reflection of the heavenly realms. We love you and we trust you. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen.